Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. This Halloween, take a minute to notice all of the amputated limbs littering haunted houses. Think about the scary stories about reanimated corpses that you tell by the fire while you're camping. And all that rubbernecking on the throughway when there's a horrific accident. The endless TV shows, podcasts, and books dedicated to grisly murders. Or even Instagram accounts like Mrs. and Jemmy and Crime Scene Cleaners, Inc., which boast of hundreds of thousands of followers, all hoping to catch a glimpse of morbid pathology and the biohazardous remnants of foul play. This is obviously not a niche thing, okay? There's lots of people into this. We're just as much fascinated by violent death as we are scared by it. There's something about violence and death that's captivating to us. When violent death is combined with high-tech gadgets, police procedures, and super cool forensic testing, you get true crime, one of the most popular genres worldwide. I myself am a true crime junkie, but I'm also a social historian of medicine and the body, so today's episode is a combination of my most favorite things. In the course of researching this episode, I realized that I was going to have to weave together three largely unrelated narratives. Medical pathology has its own history. Death investigation does too. And to make things more complicated, there's a whole medical legal infrastructure whose history we have to tell. First, we'll discuss death investigation and dissection before pathologists, before pathology was a thing. Then we'll cover the development of the field of pathology from 1500 to today. And it's important to realize that pathology has two components, a procedural component embodied in the autopsy, 
and an intellectual component, which contributes to the building of bodies of knowledge for diagnostic purposes. So some pathologists are just researchers who are trying to research the courses that diseases take. Clinical pathology brings these two facets together by way of dissection for diagnostic purposes, and this is the autopsy. Forensic pathology uses the tools of the clinical pathologists, including the autopsy, for the purposes of criminal investigation and prosecution. Throughout the episode, I'll also try to give you a basic history of medical legal systems. Medical legal systems have been used for centuries for punishment in the case of post-execution dissection and for investigation in the case of early autopsies and suspected poisonings, just for example. As we work through this historical labyrinth, keep in mind that even though elements of forensic pathology have been around for centuries, modern medical examiners are a very recent phenomenon. It'll be sciencey, a very sciencey episode, so you'll need to hang in there, but it'll also be creepy and cool and super interesting. I'm Marissa. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. <laughs> Before we get started, uh, we wanted to give a shout out to Genevieve in Brooklyn. We got a fantastic email from her thanking us for the um, Caribbean slavery episode that just came out a couple weeks ago. She explained how the episode touched her personally because she just recently discovered that her husband's ancestors were slave-owning planters in San Croix, um, which is a small island in the Caribbean. And she's been mulling over how to talk about their history uh, with her kids. So Genevieve, getting your email made us so happy because it proves to us that we really do history that matters. And it doesn't really just matter only to us, but also to our listeners who find ways to make meaning in their lives when listening to our episodes. So much love from us. And Thank you, Genevieve. Thanks for your email. Death investigations had been conducted for centuries, and they very rarely involved medical experts. In fact, most people date the field of pathology back only as far as the medical community's involvement in death investigation, which began in the 18th century. Prior to that, searchers of the dead, working for the local parish, were responsible for investigating deaths in their districts. The most interesting thing about searches of the dead is that they were all women. In fact, most contemporaries called them women searchers. Most commonly, they were also old and poor. In the Black Death context, this makes sense because who else will you have risking their lives in dens of contagion other than poor old hags, right? But searchers were licensed by the bishop, and they had penal authority, which was very uncommon in medieval and early modern England. It was very uncommon for women to have penal authority, <laughs> what, you know, like in general. <laughs> is that supposed, supposed to be some kind of penis joke on your behalf? I just left. I didn't. You were making a penis joke. No. <laughs> I was saying it's women searchers weren't uncommon, but just the fact women having authority in the penal system was uncommon. So, oh, my God. You can't even hear the word penal without laughing. 
So, um, even after medical authorities began practicing diagnostic dissections, Paris surgers were more commonly the people who were handling death investigation. In October of 1773, um, Lloyd's Evening Post published the following short story. So this is, um, it's, it's quite short, just sort of a news blurb, okay? So here we go. On Monday, a hearse and two coaches attended at a home near Walmouth for the funeral of a widow gentlewoman who died on Saturday last. Whilst the coaches were waiting, a rumor was spread that the deceased had been poisoned, upon which a gentleman in the neighborhood took the parish searchers with him to the house and desired to see the body, which was refused. In consequence of the refusal, a constable was sent for. When admission being obtained, they found the deceased a miserable spectacle, her body swelled to an amazing size and her tongue hanging out of her mouth. The woman of the house, giving very unsatisfactory answers to the questions that were put to her, was taken before the justice of the peace, who committed her for further examination, and a coroner's jury are summoned to inquire into the matter." So based on the story, we know that searchers of the dead investigated suspicious deaths, um, that they were sent by the parish, and that they had enough authority to summon a constable on their behalf. Um, you may have heard of parish searchers before if you've read or listened to histories of the Black Death, but few people realize that these searchers were permanent fixtures in English parishes. They weren't just hired ad hoc at times of epidemic. Searchers were appointed by parish authorities well into the 19th century. When someone died, searchers would be called for by family or sometimes the town would ring a death bell. The searchers inspected the corpse and notified grave diggers that their services were needed. After inspecting the dead, searchers drew up a report of the death for the town's death registers. These were called bills of mortality. The searchers were paid a fee for each corpse inspected and compelled to take an oath as to the accuracy of each bill of mortality. Only then could the parish clerk issue a certificate for interment. Searchers' primary goal was to identify deaths by infectious disease and to look for signs of violence on dead bodies. If infectious disease was the cause of death, municipal authorities were alerted so they could take steps to prevent an epidemic. If murder was suspected, the constable would be notified and more investigations, such as a coroner's inquest, would be performed. Searchers had no medical training. They were underpaid and it was not a pleasant job. Physician William Black calculated that in 1750 there were 23,757 deaths in London. And the law required that each corpse was inspected by two searchers before interment. There were an estimated 147 teams of searchers that year, so each searcher would have examined 161 bodies that year, a body basically every other day. <laughs> For more on searchers of the dead, look to Kevin Sienna, Deborah Harkness, Rochelle Munkoff, and Wanda Henry. Yeah, I just want to say that Wanda Henry is still a um, PhD candidate, and I presented with her at a conference, and, and she was awesome and she was writing about searchers and who they actually were and things like that and deborah harkness is the writer of the discovery of witches the discovery of witches but she's actually a historian an actual an academic historian and she has written a lot about searchers of the dead um also so uh 
Searchers determined causes of death for the bills of mortality, yes, but they didn't open the body. Even coroners rarely open bodies. Coroner's inquests more closely resembled a modern hearing or trial than it did the medical examinations performed by forensic pathologists today. Notable gentlemen presided over suspicious deaths, inspecting the corpse and hearing testimony from witnesses. They convened and passed a verdict on the cause of death after some discussion. However, as the 18th century wore on, magistrates became increasingly likely to order medical dissections for evidence in criminal investigations. This was especially common in the case of stillborn children, as women were often suspected of infanticide. For such cases, magistrates demanded that the cause of death be determined by a trained surgeon, and this may or may not have included dissection. Dissection in medical schools, such as the University of Padua, became common in the late 1500s. In medieval Europe, surgeons were typically barber surgeons, trained under apprenticeship like any other tradesman. The use of dissection in medical education during the Renaissance was a game changer. It combined the intellectual interests of physicians who typically dealt with medicine in a hands-off, theoretical way, with the practice of surgeons who had the practical knowledge of body structures. In 1594, the University of Padua established the first known anatomical theater. Two years later, another one was built at Leiden in the Netherlands. They resembled classical amphitheaters with descending circular tiers leading down to an operating table where senior faculty would dissect a human corpse in front of student observers. In Leiden, students and faculty had even begun to observe patients during their illnesses at the time of their deaths and then after death in the anatomical theater. This process naturally led them to speculate about the connection between their patient symptoms, how the disease caused their death, and then the signs they observed on the patient's body as a result of the fatal disease. At this point in time, diseases were explained in terms of humoral theory. Humoral theory was developed by Galen of Pergamon, a Greek physician living in the Roman Empire in the 2nd century CE. Galen posited that the body contained four fluids or humors, and these were blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. Very yummy sounding. (laughs) Um... Healthy bodies contained a balance of these four humors, though everyone's humoral makeup was slightly different. The humors had their own innate properties. Blood was hot and wet, phlegm was cold and wet, yellow bile was hot and dry, and black bile was cold and dry. Imbalanced humors could cause physical changes in the body as well as behavioral changes, such as irritability or depression. Disease was caused by either acute or chronic imbalance of humors. Excess yellow bile, for example, made people choleric. Um, Symptoms could include anger, aggression, jaundice, fever, heartburn. Physicians treated choleric patients with emetics, substances which would make patients vomit. The hope was that they might purge their excess yellow bile and bring the humors back into balance. Choleric patients were also sometimes treated with cold and wet foods. Physicians thought that if one's body was too hot and dry, as was the case with the choleric patient, that cold and wet foods might restore balance. 
There are many gendered aspects to colonic medicine as well, but we won't have enough time to get into that here. But suffice it to say that Galen's humors influenced medical diagnosis well into the 19th century, even though trained experts began to dismantle his theories much earlier. Humoral medicine was a limiting framework for their interpretations, but still, physicians at Leiden were, as early as 1600, doing the work that would become the discipline of pathology 200 years later. It took some time, though, before anyone recognized the value of post-mortem autopsy to the field of diagnosis. There was no systematic process in place. Autopsies were few in number, and no one thought to record their observations for future diagnostic use. This changed after the Enlightenment, which popularized philosophies of materialism. Over the course of the 1700s, interest in human, animal, and plant anatomy exploded. Scientists were convinced that understanding the matter which made up the natural world was the key to explaining any question we might have. The Enlightenment reinvigorated empirical research and launched a collaborative effort to identify, record, and classify the entire natural world. Swede Carl Linnaeus, for example, devised binomial nomenclature, the system of classification still used by biologists today. He also created an animal taxonomy, which placed humans in the category of primate. Materialist philosophy and the new preoccupation with documentation and classification triggered exponential growth in the number of anatomy theaters and the frequency of autopsy in medical educational programs. In 1761, Giovanni Morgagni published On the Sites and Causes of Disease, what many consider to be the first publication in the field of pathology. Morgagni was born in 1682 and attended the University of Bologna and became a professor at the University of Padua in 1711. So side note, that, which is something I found out when I was reading his biography, um, he and his wife Paola had 12 daughters and three sons. And I cannot, I cannot begin to imagine the labor uh, that she put into their family um, as he built this fantastic career. So shout out to Paola. Paola! <laughs> Girl. It reminds me of that study about that woman who like typed her husband's dissertation oh or, or like a bunch of people typed their husband's dissertations. Mm-hmm. Or, and it's like, typing. oh, it's like invisible female labor, but it's 15 children. Oh my God. Crazy. Mm. So anyway. He should have given himself a vasectomy. <laughs> For... Maybe they wanted that many children, A-Roll. Um, she did <laughs> She might have. So for 50 years, Morgagni practiced as a physician and medical professor, keeping careful notes. His colleagues called him his anatomical majesty because he was fascinated by human anatomy and he never shied away from inspecting the bodies of his patients. So most of his colleagues developed diagnoses and courses of treatment through verbal interviews, but Morgagni actually touched his patients' bodies. Heaven forbid. Palpitate, palpitate. So at the age of 78, Morgagni collected his notes from decades of practice, and it included a total of 630 patients whom he followed during their illness, death, and he performed their autopsies. Mm. Thorough. (laughs) He used this data to describe a new way of understanding the body as a mechanical structure whose functioning was interrupted by diseases that could be identified in post-mortem observations. He described how disease changed or damaged the structures of the body and how those structural changes caused symptoms and sometimes death. 
For example, he differentiated between stomach cancer and stomach ulcers, identified heart block syndrome, now called Adam-Stokes syndrome, and described the damage done to a human heart after a heart attack. When he passed away at the age of 89, his body was autopsied. It was found that his cause of death was a heart attack. Medical historian Roy Porter once wrote, It was Morgani who finally clinched the direct relevance of anatomy to clinical medicine. In other words, Morgani's work, including all that careful documentation correlating symptoms to diseases to anatomical findings, tied the external pathologies noted by surgeons with the internal pathology practiced by physicians. It also elevated surgery from a trade or vocation to a respectable scientific profession. They're moving on up. Moving on up. So initially, the field of medical pathology revolved around human tissue. Theories surrounding tissue pathology were developed for the most part in Britain in the 1760s and 1770s. Um, and, and even though Britain, they are credited for this tissue pathology, they had like a they had a pan-European sort of community. So it wasn't just Brits. Lots but, of conversation. Yeah. Scottish surgeon John Hunter established an anatomy school in London around 1764. He earned his medical education at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in the 1750s and became the house surgeon at St. George's Hospital in 1756. The proliferation of hospitals in the 18th century gave pathologists a new form for observation. Five general hospitals were established in London between 1700 and 1750. In 1719, two-thirds of the shires in England had no hospital or infirmary, but by 1799, every shire had at least one hospital, and most large cities had several. So it was just, I mean, hospitals were not a thing, and then hospitals were a thing Mm -hmm. very quickly. Um, so after 1750, the surgeons and physicians practicing in London's hospitals, they're often called the faculty, <laughs> which is reminds me of that, that movie? movie with Ryan Phillippe or something, no, right? No, it's Josh Hartnett. But anyway, the faculty began lecturing and drawing enrollment of medical students from around the empire. They also supervised clinical rounds. This model of medical application was mostly new. The vast majority of surgeons had, to this point, performed trauma-related surgeries without anesthesia, by the way. Gross. Um, Short procedures like gallbladder removal, and they encountered corpses in the anatomy theater. And I want to point out that one surgeon was able to perfect his gallbladder removal so well that the surgery took less than two minutes, which was important because ouch, no anesthesia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, they almost never treated patients experiencing symptoms or reviewed extensive medical records in relation to their procedures. Um, Morgani was a bit of an outlier in this respect. But Hunter's generation and those that followed benefited from rounds of clinical observations in London's many hospitals prior to surgeries and autopsies. This generation of surgeons were the first to not only contest humoral theory, but to establish a theory of pathology in its place, which was tissue pathology. Tissue pathology regarded the body's many systems as a complex array of layered tissues which had distinctive properties and performed distinctive functions. The brothers Hunter and their protege, the brothers Grimm, the brothers, <laughs> the brothers Hunter, Hunter. And the brothers Hunter, <laughs> and their proteges articulated various pathologies as problems of the different tissues within the body. From 1760 to 1763, John Hunter served as an army surgeon in the Seven Years' War. 
He was horrified by the state of trauma care, especially the process of wound dilation. In the 1760s, army surgeons typically dilated gunshot wounds using various tools so they could reach the shot and gunpowder lodged in the patient's tissue. (laughs) Hunter suspected that the practice did more harm than good. He's right. In his later years, after decades of clinical observation and surgical intervention, Hunter published a treatise on blood inflammations and gunshot wounds where he argued that inflammation was the body's natural healing response to trauma and not a pathology on its own. Right, which is life-changing because then people realize, wait, we want to do surgeries that cause less trauma, not more trauma. (laughs) Um, So before the invention of the microscope, tissues were the lowest common denominator, the smallest unit of observation available to the naked eye. If you you think about it, it makes sense that they're focusing on tissues. Mm -hmm. This form of pathology was practiced and perfected in Paris by a cohort of teaching tissue pathologists headed by Xavier Bichat. Parisian tissue pathologists had a large pool of subjects to study. Parisian hospitals were massive. The Hôtel Dieu, which is like the, I think it's the first Parisian hospital, Hmm. um, it's, it had as many as 3,000 beds Hmm. in post-revolutionary in Napoleonic France. And all of those hospitals in London, they had like, you know, 150 beds or something. Um, 150 patients at a time. We're talking 3,000. I mean, it's crazy. So Parisian hospitals had a steady supply of the injured, sick, and dying, thanks to the chaos, violence, and starvation of the war-torn capital. Parisian physicians at the École de Santé, which is the School of Health, systematized clinical rounds, death attendance, and post-mortem examinations. So they had the system where they would do all three of those with one patient. Hmm. As one medical historian puts it, Their findings were all, quote, variations on the theme of get this disease, die in this way, the morbid appearance of tissues thus displayed, end quote. So it's sort of like, you know, they they had this chain of causality. Their value lay in the repetition of the same process time and again to compile bodies of diagnostic knowledge whenever they encountered similar cases. The Parisian faculty's emphasis on tissues changed the way that medical students learned. Though dissection was a visual practice, anatomists still tended to teach their students primarily through verbal descriptions and lectures. Tissue pathology triggered a movement toward visual teaching aids, meaning pictures and diagrams. Prior to the rise of tissue pathology, the source of disease was located in specific organs. Students were easily able to understand organ functionality through lecture. Once the origins of disease were traced, instead, to types of tissue, such as lymphatic tissue, epithelial tissue, pericardial tissue, etc., visual aids became indispensable. In addition to diagrams, medical students consulted preserved specimens. Right, so if you think about it, that makes sense because, like, lymphatic tissue or whatever they consider that to be might not be all in one place in the body. Like, we're talking about like a layered system. Mm -hmm. So they found that people needed visual aids, some PowerPoint. (laughs) Famed Scottish physician Matthew Bailey attributed his success in pathology to three things. His post as a resident physician in a large hospital, his teaching post at an anatomy school, and most importantly, his access to prepared pathology specimens. There were several specimen collections in continental Europe, and the use of preserved specimens and instruction was by many considered to be a particularly French medical practice. 
Still, the largest and most useful collection resided in London. John Hunter's older brother, William Hunter, he, he was also a surgeon uh, and a pathologist, and he was an avid collector, which was very common in the 18th century to be a collector of things. Mm-hmm. Um, William Hunter gave his students access to the vast collection of medical specimens which he had assembled over the course of his career. He was known for a spectacular business acumen, which allowed him to build elaborate networks around London to procure cadavers for dissection or specimen preparation. In the rest of Britain, cadavers were in short supply. William Hunter drew medical students from all over Britain because he used his cadavers and specimens to teach medicine in the French style. Hmm. When he passed away in 1783, William Hunter's collection contained 15,000 preserved specimens. Most of them consisted of preserved cross-sections of tissue, both wet and dry preparations, which uh, presented with various morbid pathologies. For example, specimen 21.45, you can still see these today, showed the dentate nucleus of the cerebellum of a man who suffered from chronic madness. Interestingly, um, the cerebellum appeared totally normal. So that was the interesting part, was that there's this guy with documented madness, and then they were like, wait, his cerebellum is normal. Mm -hmm. The suprarenal gland, so a a gland above the kidney, I guess Mm -hmm. is what that would mean, of uh, Queen Charlotte's elephant, um, which was dissected in 1776, is preserved in this um, section of the collection as well. Dental students found the preserved dentitions particularly useful. There were many jaws of children which showed the various developmental stages of tooth eruption and loss. There are also 260 different specimens which show various stages of fetal development, placental problems, and uterine and ovarian disease. The fetal specimens include one set of identical triplets, Hmm. which... Must have been fascinating when yeah. when triplets were so rare before, like, you know, hormone therapy. And right. Stuff. Yeah. Interesting. In recent years, William Hunter's anatomy collection has ignited debates over the ethical implications of exhibiting human and animal specimens. In 2010, an amateur historian managed to get an article published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine, wherein he accused the Hunter brothers and their colleague, William Smelly, <laughs> <laughs> I have to use him a lot for my dissertation. I know, and it's like, ha, ha, ha. His name, His last is, name is Smelly. smelly. <laughs> uh, of murdering 35, to, oh my God, of murdering 35 to 40 pregnant women and their fetuses. The author argued that he had documentation that the three physicians were responsible for the burking deaths of vulnerable women who sought their professional expertise. So burking is something... Is named after I think his name is William Burke. Oh Burke, yeah. Burke who Burke and Hare. He would Burke and Hare, yeah. Yeah. So Burke would sit on top of like women's chests or something and cover their nose, like some. It was like a way of suffocating them that showed, like, didn't really show in the death anything. Records. Like right, so you couldn't see like strangulation marks or anything like that. It was like a combination of crushing and plugging your nose, something like mm. that. And so they called it burking. And so this hmm. uh, author in 2010 argued that William Hunter and two other physicians burked all these women hmm. to death. Okay. This, the author argues, is why William Hunter was so skilled at procuring cadavers. He was killing them himself. 
himself. That's sort of what I thought when I really? heard how many he had. Yeah. Of course, the press ran with this. His interpretation of his evidence has been largely debunked by several medical historians. Still, several historians have confirmed that gestating and postpartum women and their fetal remains were the most desired specimens. Right. So we don't know for sure, but there, we're pretty sure that he didn't murder them. He did not murder them? <laughs> that he did not. Yeah, well, maybe but... not, not with his own hands. The do- Burke himself was not a doctor. He was hired by right. a doctor. He was a, yeah, right. Yeah. He was like a procurer or something. Yeah. 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 The collecting impulses of tissue pathologists were, in hindsight, problematic, but still they made several important discoveries. Xavier Bichat classified 21 types of tissues that made up the human body, launching the field of histology. Edward Jenner, a student of Hunter's, developed the world's first vaccine in 1789. Rene Leinach invented the stethoscope for listening to activity within the patient's chest. Prior to this invention, physicians placed their ears against the patient's body to listen to heart and lung sounds. Leopold Aubruger von Auenbrugger. <laughs> I know. Nuh-uh. Leopold Auenbrugger von Auenbrug is what his name God is. God damn it, Leopold. Leopold. Leopold Auenbrugger von Auenbrug devised the diagnostic techniques of percussion, tapping the body with an instrument to detect structural problems. William Cullen developed a disease classification scheme called nosology, and Samuel Hahnemann invented homeopathy. Note that scientists were focusing on ways that autopsies might advance medical theory and not how autopsy might help investigate criminal cases. Searchers and non-invasive coroner inquests were still being used as the primary tool for criminal investigations. Right. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is that that one um, the one guy, Rene Leineck, he who invented the stethoscope, the reason he invented it is because he felt so awkward putting his ear onto women's breasts. breasts to listen to their hearts. And he was like, oh, it's just so awkward for them. And it's like, yeah, awkward for them. But now he, he has to put a cold <laughs> metal tool on Right, him. exactly. So he was just trying to find a way that physicians could keep their heads off of women's boobs. Well, that was very so, considerate of him. That is nice of him, yeah. Thanks, Renee. Thanks, Renee. Um, by the 1830s, Parisian physician Auguste Chomel and his colleagues were conducting methodical observations of patients in large numbers. This allowed for the compilation of large data sets that could be statistically analyzed. So instead of just having, oh, well, 10 women, this happened, you can say, hey, out of 1,000 women who had this disease, this happened to them, right? Mm-hmm. So this allowed pathologists to not only determine causes of illness and death, but to determine comorbidities and offer patients prognoses. In other words, they could recognize diseases that often occur together and predict with some degree of accuracy how long a patient might live or how they might fare after contracting a particular disease. These promising developments did not, however, insulate medical pathology from criticism. People were beginning to resent pathologists' funding of criminal gangs of body snatchers, sometimes called resurrectionist men. One cannot discuss 19th century medical pathology and exclude body snatchers from the conversation. So let's take a quick detour from the narrative of the discipline to answer the question of where surgeons were getting all these bodies from. And we also have an old episode on Frankenstein, uh, which covers body snatching in a literary context. So check that out. It's an old one, but we do have dreams of redoing it. Uh, Just hasn't happened yet. Yes, but it's still 
listenable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I, I keep going. Traditionally, medical schools secured cadavers from the gallows. England had a long history of post-mortem harm. The Murder Act of 1752 ordered that criminals convicted of homicide were to be hanged and then sent for post-mortem dissection. Though the criminal was already dead, the opening of their bodies, usually in public venues by penal surgeons, was regarded as a humiliating punishment worse than death. This is how Elizabeth Brownrigg was punished. Yes, another episode connection. (laughs) There was also a practical aspect to criminal dissection. Penal surgeons were also making sure that the criminal was actually deceased. Occasionally, hanged criminals were revived after their bodies were cut from the scaffold, especially in cold weather. The primary purpose of this choreographed performance, however, was to deter violent crime. But surgeons and medical students benefited from the state's criminal code. In London, there was an anatomy theater built specifically for criminal dissections, but in almost all cases, the hanging was done in the public square. In April 1813, the hanging of Edith Morey reportedly drew a crowd of 10,000 in the small town of Chester. Morey's body was opened on site to confirm death before being delivered to the local infirmary to undergo full dissection. Right, so in post mortem harm is just what the term is called when you harm the body after yeah, it's dead. Right, when you're sentenced to have your body harmed after it's dead. It's just kind of the legal term. Um, surgeons also used the bodies of the poor who died in infirmaries or hospitals and could not afford burial. Still, demand outpaced the supply of cadavers. Body snatchers took advantage of this problem, stealing bodies from poor houses, asylums, cemeteries, and even directly from their own homes. A black market quickly developed to supply medical schools with stolen cadavers. Undertakers filled coffins with sawdust. Procurers bribed nurses and gravediggers to covertly traffic fresh corpses. Some body snatchers were even found to have killed vulnerable people only to turn around and sell their cadavers. Eventually, the desperation for corpses was felt by respectable, well-to-do families. In January 1832, the Observer in London reported that a, quote, gang of body snatchers had stolen the corpse of Mr. Wilson, a man of property, from his deathbed. That same year, the Anatomy Act was passed in Parliament. The 1832 Act was meant to damage the network of illegal cadaver trafficking by giving legal authorization to alternative supply streams. But, as the fabulous historian of death, Elizabeth Hearn, has noted, the primary purpose of the Anatomy Act was to protect respectable families from grave robbery and body theft. Hearn found that poor relief authorities and asylum personnel sold cadavers of the poor to medical establishments to recoup the cost of having cared for the person while they were alive. So basically, this act made it legal for authorities to sell the bodies of the poor. This attempt to address body snatching might have improved the problem for the wealthy, but the poor were exploited more than ever before, even in death. In the 1870s, there was an anti-welfare movement in Britain, and Hearn has found that the supply of pauper cadavers doubled during the campaign. So the more that people were campaigning against welfare and poor relief, the more poor bodies medical schools were getting. So she makes the point that the economic agendas of poor relief authorities were aligned with the research and training needs of medical establishments. One thing to keep in mind is that cadaver supply is a problem even today. 
But with 3D printing technology, we have the ability to print artificial but anatomically accurate specimens for dissection, which is super cool. Over the course of the 1830s and 1840s, microscopists continued to improve their instruments. Scientists all over Europe began to observe the tiny structures that composed human tissues, cells. Matthias Schlieden and Theodore Schwann were the first to describe the cell and its basic functioning. They argued that cells were the building blocks of life for plants and animals. They coined the term metabolic for the chemical exchanges that took place within and between cells. Scientists debated the merits of cell theory for decades. Still, the idea of a pathology based on cells rather than tissues remained theoretical until German pathologist Rudolf Virchow published the creatively named article Cellular Pathology in 1858. <laughs> it's like all of their titles are just like, this is what I'm writing. This is what it is. <laughs> well, it's because they were the first to do it. So I know. they didn't have to be like, There's not 10 other books called another. Cellular exactly. Pathology. Yeah. Right. He argued that disease occurred when cells malfunctioned or produced defective copies of themselves. As one medical historian put it, to Virchow, cells were the units not only of life, but also of death. Virchow's article served as the foundation of the new pathology, based on cellular rather than tissue biology. This new paradigm changed the ways that pathologists diagnose disease and determine the cause of death. And it couldn't have come at a better time. 19th century cities were crowded and unsanitary. Nutritional deficiencies, infectious disease, and traumatic injury interfered with most people's quality of life. In Manchester, in the United Kingdom, for instance, death rates in the city were triple the rates in the immediate countryside. In New York City, rates of infant mortality doubled between 1810 and 1870. In German cities, 94.7 out of every 10,000 people died from gastrointestinal disease, and another 67 people out of every 10,000 people died from respiratory infection. This means that about 15,000 people died each year in each large German city from diarrhea and tuberculosis alone. These numbers are huge. For the sake of comparison, we found that in 2017, there were 100 tuberculosis deaths in all of Germany. Right. So tuberculosis is one of the diseases that has not been eradicated completely yet um, because of antibiotic-resistant strains and things like that. So, yeah, 100 tuberculosis deaths in all of Germany. And those are tuberculosis-related deaths. Right. As opposed to 15,000 people in each city each year. It's just... When there were less people at the time. Yeah. And also, I mean, there are probably still people dying from diarrhea today, but just not very many. Probably. Yeah, I mean, probably. Yeah. Um, And we don't just call it diarrhea. Like, we talk about... Dehydration Why they have... Right. Why why they have the problem. But yeah, so there's... The point is that everybody was sick all the time, basically. Um... Municipal officials in 19th century cities in Europe and America were intent on slowing the spread of disease and improving the health of the working class, mostly so they could have healthy workers and then they could be richer, right? No, I'm just kidding. Money! That's super cynical, but no, they were worried about the working classes. So um, (laughs) public health officials recognized autopsy as a means of identifying outbreaks of infectious disease, accidental deaths due to hazardous conditions, and instances of homicide. Slowly, autopsies were incorporated into normal procedure in death investigation. 
As they became more common, pathologists such as Sir William Oslow developed autopsy protocols. These protocols called for the opening of the chest cavity and inspection of the organs. This systematic approach improved the accuracy of forensic and diagnostic conclusions. Medical and legal officials were convinced of the importance of autopsy to medical knowledge and public health, but the public still needed convincing. Doctors were often unable to obtain consent for autopsies because the general public regarded dissection as a form of mutilation. At this point in both Europe and the United States, the medieval inquest system had all but disappeared. Coroners had been vested with the power to compel physicians to order autopsies, and their primary goal became the identification and investigation of suspicious deaths. Their power within the medical legal system continued to increase for the next 100 years. In the 1890s, American gynecologist Howard Kelly suggested a new, less invasive autopsy technique. Kelly argued that pathologists could access and remove internal organs for examination with incisions only in the vagina, perineum, and rectum. I know, it doesn't sound less invasive to me at all. that doesn't seem less invasive. (laughs) Please use my gallbladder removal surgery scars instead. The legs of the cadaver would be elevated in stirrups for the procedure, and the pathologist would reach into the chest cavity from between the legs. It's like like treating the human body like a sack, that you're just like, oh, I'm just pulling some potatoes out of this sack. It's so gross. Gross. This type of autopsy left the visible parts of the body intact and unscarred. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I would prefer the Y incision. Yeah, please just rip open that chest, please. (laughs) Perhaps this is why it didn't really gain traction in the field, but it shows that people were trying to make autopsy more palatable for the general public, um, or at least the male general public, (laughs) I guess. Uh, What followed was an explosion of new disciplines, especially once scientists used microscopes to watch cells split. They were better able to understand the science behind cellular generation, which had all kinds of implications for the study of cancer, genetics, skin grafting, etc. Immunology also benefited from the efforts of cellular pathologists. Cellular pathology had potential to improve people's lives. Virchow's understanding of cells influenced the way that he practiced his craft. Virchow wrote several articles about tumor pathology. With a new understanding of cellular function, Virchow stressed the importance of inspecting excised tumors under the microscope to ensure that it had a histologically, or cell-based, clean margins. This meant that the surgeon had excised enough tissue to assure that no cancerous cells were left behind. This principle is still followed today. Julius Kohnheim used the new cellular principles to study inflammation. In decades past, inflammation was thought to be a problem occurring at the tissue level, but Kohnheim suspected that inflammation started at the cellular level. His hypothesis was proven by vivisection, another old episode that we did. Connections. We're just, connections. Yeah, connections. So vivisection is dissecting animals while they're still alive. Um, he showed that not all cells had inflammatory capabilities. Kohnheim used vivisection to demonstrate how trauma and infection prompted local cells to solicit the aid of inflammatory cells from elsewhere in the body. Cellular biology also launched the field of bacteriology. Medical scientists knew more than they ever had about the growth and behavior of bacteria cells. Even though cellular pathology led to tremendous scientific advancement, and may have had a negative impact on medical students' understanding of the body. 
Scientists engineered precision machinery that could slice paper-thin specimens, dyes to make structures more visible, and chemicals that could preserve and, de and not destroy such delicate tissues. Medical education revolved around microscopic specimens, and therefore practicing pathologists had a more localized understanding of disease. They focused on culturing samples from abscesses and identifying the pathogens extracted from the body with very little insight into how the body functioned as a whole. Comparative anatomist Ernst Haeckel worried that the new generation of medical students, quote, will only know cross-sections and colored tissues, but neither the entire animal nor its mode of life. Medical historians call this crisis a hunger for wholeness, and it peaked in the beginning of the 20th century. Pathologists felt like they had zoomed so far into the structures of the body that they had lost sight of how the system was working as a whole. Scientists launched a movement to integrate cellular pathology with the body as a whole. Russian and German scientists began calling for a return to the clinical approach that had arisen in the 18th century when pathologists performed clinical rounds in Europe's hospitals. So um, they're looking for medical students to understand the body as a whole. And ironically, it was the rapid diversification of medical specialties that allowed for a more holistic approach to pathology. And that just seems ironic to me that, firstly, there was chemical pathology. There had been a few forays into chemical diagnostics in the early 19th century. Um, in the 1830s, Richard Bright used chemical analysis of the urine of patients with dropsy, which we now know to be like edema and heart failure. Mm -hmm to prove that it contained a certain protein and indicated malfunctioning of the kidneys. So from that point forward, dropsy was diagnosable through this technique of chemical analysis. But for almost two centuries, chemical tests on specimens for the purpose of diagnosis were rare. It wasn't until the 21st century that chemical analysis became a routine part of postmortem examination. So, you know, within our lifetime that that mm -hmm. became a normal thing to do. This was before the time of rapid chemical assays, so before they kind of had tests that you could you could figure out right away, um, and the inclusion of diagnostic laboratories in many hospitals. So they just weren't set up to to do chemical tests on people all the time. Still, the field of chemical pathology bridged the gap between bedside and morgue that had opened during the cellular pathology phase. This is because patients were undergoing chemical analyses when they presented with symptoms, while they were being treated, and then again after they died. Mm -hmm. So they had some sort of continuity. Yeah. Something similar happened with surgical pathology, too, which also came into being in the early 20th century. Surgical pathologists would excise a tumor from someone's breast, examine the tumor, and then create a report of the diagnosis. They didn't usually examine cadavers of the patients they'd operated on, but their reports gave medical examiners a pathological trajectory that had not been standard in the past. Now, during autopsy, pathologists could consult vast bodies of medical records prepared by pathology specialists throughout a patient's lifetime. This marked a return to clinical pathology for the rest of the 20th century. Pathologists were satisfied with the direction of the field, but strangely, starting in 1960, autopsies declined and pathologists' con contribution to medical innovation all but disappeared. There have been several studies performed about this odd decline, and all of them have found that it was not the deceased family members who were declining autopsy. It was clinicians who were becoming less and less likely to request them. They argued that diagnostic medicine had advanced so far that they typically knew what a pa patient had died from based on tests that they had performed while the patient was still alive. 
In the case of foul play, clinicians argued that investigative techniques were so effective that they rarely needed an autopsy to discover the cause of death. This all makes sense. Trained pathologists found that opportunities for autopsy became rare, and pathologists lost their place as leaders in medical innovation and diagnosis. Pathology went on to play important roles in clinical chemistry and more recently in genomics, but we get the impression that pathologists are now the red-headed stepchildren within the medical community. Right, so instead of being the people who are sort of in charge of keeping track of this diagnostic mm-hmm. body of knowledge, right. yeah, they're, um, they're kind of on the margins yeah. a little bit. It was at this point in the time when hospital autopsy was rare that pathologists became more intimately involved with criminal investigation. Forensic pathology, which has the goal of finding the cause and manner of suspicious deaths, quickly became the most visible branch of the field. This required a drastic reorganization of medical legal systems in Europe and America. New York City was the first to institute a medical examiner system in 1915, after they'd received repeated criticism for the failures of their coroner system. Forensic investigation, which was becoming increasingly popular, uh, put professional pathologists in the middle of criminal investigations. While English coroners were increasingly medically trained and employed by municipalities, American coroners still tended to be political appointees and most had no medical training. In America, most cities opted to establish a medical examiner system. They used taxpayer money to hire a trained pathologist who conducted postmortem autopsies at the behest of legal authorities. Medical examiners perform autopsies in the case of suspected murder, accidental death, suicide, and other sudden deaths. Once the medical examiner system became more prevalent, autopsies outside of the criminal scope continued to be performed in hospitals by medical pathologists seeking knowledge about a patient's disease trajectory. So there kind of became two different reasons why you might have an autopsy performed. I mean, there was always more than one reason, but but the, the criminal investigative reason was mm. becoming more popular. More popular. Okay. Right. In England, the coroner system remained in place, but the coroner morphed into a figure that bore little resemblance to his or her medieval counterpart. Even today, English coroners are medically trained and act as independent investigators of death. They perform more post-mortem examinations than most medical examiners and have the ability to summon witnesses or examine evidence related to any death. In continental Europe, where the coroner system was never established, a third system emerged. This system used independent pathologists rather than medical examiners on municipal payrolls. Even today in continental Europe, police have the power to order medical examinations by trained pathologists. Legal authorities develop special relationships with medical legal organizations, often nonprofits or research institutes. Unnatural deaths are then referred to prosecutors. In the United States, many towns, usually rural ones, have maintained their coroner system even though the medical examiner system is the preferred norm. Most studies show that the coroner system yields higher autopsy rates. In the UK, autopsy rates are as high as 99% in big cities. They tend to pay closer attention to seemingly natural deaths, and each death gets more attention. But the medical examiner system results in much more effective death investigations, better aiding the prosecution when criminality is involved. They do, however, yield lower autopsy rates on the whole. Right. So in, in the UK, where they still have the coroner system, almost everybody is autopsied. Mm-hmm. 
In many ways, forensic pathology was an unlikely discipline. It required an end to parish searchers and coroner's inquests, and in some states, the elimination of coroners altogether. It requires advanced medical training, but it doesn't pay as well as other medical disciplines because they're so often civil servants rather than physicians in private practice. It also required a recognition that medical pathologists were best suited to investigate death. It seems obvious to us now, but it took hundreds of years for us to reach that conclusion and to put practical steps in place to install trained pathologists in medical examiners' offices. And to be honest, I fear for the future of forensic pathology only because their success depends on tax revenue and federal grants. In 2000, the CSI franchise launched its first show and ignited a television empire of crime shows centered on forensic pathology. Yeah, and Crossing Jordan is, like, one of my favorite TV shows. I've watched every episode lots of times. I've and it's, literally never heard of it. Oh, it's all, like, well, it's actually about the medical examiner's office, like, specifically. Mm-hmm. Is the CSI not? No, that's I've just never about the whole crime scene. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's not my jam. Uh, these shows portrayed forensic pathologists as glamorous and their work as instrumental to solving the world's most gripping murder mysteries. There's some evidence that this enthusiasm for forensic medicine led to a mismatch in the job market. In the early 2000s, trained pathologists exceeded the number of medical examiner positions by more than 30%. It's almost like a history PhD. History PhD, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, There were few of them, but they were suddenly expected to do a lot. Medical examiners generally assess the crime scene, extract samples and interpret toxicology and radiology reports, conduct autopsies and related tests, and testify in criminal trials. The American medical legal system has undergone harsh criticism in recent years. They are often unable to keep up with the latest investigative technology. Morgues are staffed predominantly by people without training in forensic pathology, which is a casualization of labor. Which is a problem everywhere. Which is a problem everywhere, yeah. (laughs) So a study of 1,600 American counties with coroners found that many of them had nothing more than a high school education. Some were just working part-time as the coroner in addition to working like a full-time job in an unrelated career. These shortcomings have occasionally led to undetected murders or even innocent people going to prison for crimes they did not commit. Right, like accidentally saying, oh, this is definitely homicide when it was actually accidental death, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Like Michael Peterson and the staircase. Sure, I know what that means. I'm I'm tuned into your your true crime stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh So um, adding insult to injury, the CSI effect has undermined the value of traditional police work in criminal trials. So this is something that a lot of people talk about now as being a problem in modern trials. Modern juries expect forensic evidence, and they're shocked to discover that most criminal cases go forward with only circumstantial evidence compiled by detectives, which is true. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's that they don't have good cases. It just means that, you know, a lot of times forensic evidence just doesn't work out, whether, you know, the mm-hmm. sample's um, problematic or they just didn't have enough money to do the tests or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, jurors are disappointed by the gap between the high-tech world of CSI and the harsh reality of medical examiners' resources. Still, some forensic pathologists, such as Jan Garavaglia, um, she has, like, her own TV show, and Nicole and Jemmy, who's, like, an Insta, uh, an Insta star, 
um, have developed cult followings on true crime TV networks or using social media. I'm thinking that there has to be some way, I would think, for forensic pathologists to capitalize on people's love for true crime, like to get the resources that they need, being beholden to taxpayers. So, Can I say something? What? The reason I hate shows like CSI is because after working in the medical examiner's office, I was like, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know. I can't stand them. I haven't (laughs) worked in one, but I I just know from, like, being so obsessed with true crime that I listen to people who do work in them, and they're like, yeah, that's not how it is. That's that's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. Right. So, right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And, And they have to prioritize some kinds of crimes over others. That's why I wanted to mention End the Backlog, which is a project designed to um, fund the processing of hundreds of thousands of rape kits, which sit untested because we don't have the resources. So they're like, well, she didn't get murdered, so let's um, not test this rape kit. And then you have serial rapists, and, you know, (laughs) it's it's largely problematic. So if you have any extra... uh, cash if you find yourself with extra cash and the backlog um is always taking donations and they just send that money right to um you know small municipalities that can't afford to test their rape kits so that's basically all i have for you today and i was trying to kind of trace the history the trajectory of how we've gotten to this point Mm -hmm. with our current death investigation uh process Mm -hmm. make sure you follow us on facebook twitter and instagram and pinterest Mm-hmm. converse with us maybe if you're enjoying what you're hearing you want to sh- give us a shout out on any of those social media platforms or you can always send us an email and it's like semi-private but obviously we'll also share it with you, all of our listeners if it's touches us the way that Genevieve's story did oh yeah we have a Patreon and, now um, you can sign up to contribute to our venture here give us one dollar a month two dollars a month five dollars a month ten dollars a month whatever a million dollars a month month. you do no you can sign up expensive really quick right so you can sign up um for whatever and uh we're just using that to make this thing run right yeah just to counterbalance our own personal expenses that we've incurred mostly avril has incurred to do the podcast so Yeah, thanks for listening, and oh, have a good creepy Halloween. Bye. Bye. Homeopathy. No, Homeopathy, but okay. Damn it. Homey, what? Homeopathy. Why not homeopathy? Because that's just not how you say it, but okay. Fine, you can say homeopathy if you want. Wait, identical triplets? Mm-hmm. Like... The egg split into three. I don't know. It's not. It's not that there was just. It's that there was just one egg. It's not that there was three eggs that all fertilized the same time. Because that's there was one egg. Hormonal stuff, right? That split twice. Primary goal became the identification and (laughs) investigation. They're microscopists. Microscopists. Why are you so bad? It's not a real thing. Microscopists? Yeah, it is. Microscopists. That's what they are. No, I don't believe you. (laughs) It's good that you're signing off because you said no, that's really weird. I know. You like only said half of the word. So, because I'm smiling so hard. It's hard to talk when you're smiling. You're supposed to be spooky. Spooky is a (laughs) thing. This is Halloween. 
mean, you can call it whatever you want. I'm going to call it whatever I just said Microscopists? Before. Yeah, microscopists. Okay, fine. That's what it says. It's microscopists. That's uh, up to interpretation. Okay. My cockapoos. <laughs> my <laughs> oh my, my god. My I can't say the word penal without her being like, <laughs> every time. <laughs> Penile. <laughs> penile. Not pen. It's not even penile. It's penal. Like P E A N I L. Like yes. Like punishment. <laughs> penal. Penises. Penis penal. Yeah. Always. <laughs> My copcopis. My cropcoscisks. My cross go. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.